Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute with another Democracy Sausage, the podcast that asks the difficult question, are you sure that's edible? Yes, it's true. Some people don't want to see the sausage being made. They just want to eat it, especially after they've just purged themselves at the ballot box. Later this week, Josh Frydenberg will escape an otherwise walled off Victoria to reach Canberra from where he will deliver a long awaited economic statement outlining the future of the massive $70 billion JobKeeper program and the rebadged JobSeeker program. And there'll be a series of two-year forecasts for debt, deficit, inflation, unemployment and economic growth and so on, which is likely to make for some pretty grim reading. Make no mistake, this is a critical juncture in the living standards and life opportunities of many Australians, and it's an important moment in the political life of this government as well. Hopes of a snapback and previously ironclad intentions to end these generous assistance schemes in September have fallen like scales from the Coalition's eyes amid the realisation that this is a long and difficult downturn, its effects measured in years rather than months. Remember when Scott Morrison resisted full lockdown measures saying that whatever we did we'd have to do for six months? Well, perhaps he was right. In the end, we locked down for a lot less than that and now the question arises, did we come out too early? Plainly, something went badly wrong in Victoria, but it might easily have happened elsewhere. Somehow we managed to get ourselves to the position we were in before the first wave hit, which is rather vulnerable. In past episodes, we discussed different aspects of the corona crisis, and this week I thought we'd take a look at a couple of areas the government has conspicuously left out of the main programs. The arts and entertainment area particularly, and music as a particular focus, and of course the universities from which this podcast emanates. And I've got two great guests to discuss this with. Professor Paul Pickering is director of both the Research School of Humanities and the Arts and of the Australian Studies Institute, where I'm located. Welcome back, Paul. 
Nice to see you again, Mark. And from the ANU School of Music, Associate Professor Kim Cuneo is head of that school and co-artistic director of ANU Music Press. Kim, it's great to have you here with us, if only virtually, on Democracy Sausage. Delighted to be a part of it, and as a long-time Democracy Sausage consumer, um, you know, I'm part of it. <laughs> a consumer, I like that idea. That's, uh, that's perfectly put. Um, Paul, you're a Victorian by upbringing, The situation is obviously very troubling there uh, in that state. It feels to me in some ways like we've gone full circle. There was so much admiration for the way the Federation sort of suddenly clicked into functionality at the start of this crisis, both levels of government working together, premiers and, and, and prime minister no longer fighting everyone on the same page. And yet now it feels like very quickly and, and almost like a reflex there's this kind of tendency to snap back, if I can borrow that term, to the old ways. There's a sort of a hyper-partisanship. The Australian, for example, can barely disguise its schadenfreude, its anti-Dan Andrews schadenfreude at, uh, at the suffering in Victoria. Every front page seems to be about, about you know, what went wrong there. And clearly, as I say, things did go wrong there. But um, are you surprised at, the, at just how quickly uh, this, um, this kind of national goodwill, this, this sort of sense of unity has broken down, at least in some quarters? Uh, not really in the context of the way in which the Australian Federation was created. I mean, the longstanding and quite, um, quite vicious debates between free t- traders and protectionists back in, in the late 19th century through to the vote for federation were entirely about um, stone throwing between two colonies at, at that point about um, the, the future of an Australian Commonwealth. Um, and so in a way, the, the sort of consensus politics about um, that's really uh, sustained the first responses to the, to the crisis were in a, in a sense, atypical of the way we all have anticipated um, uh, politicians, basically, to respond. It, it, and, it, and to be fair, I suppose it's not really just politicians or even not principally politicians that we're talking about here at the moment. It's, it's, it's more your sort of traditional media. There's a lot of uh, aggression coming from some quarters of the media about Victoria because I think Dan Andrews was seen as you know, a sort of a favourite of the left. Uh, you know, he was a, 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 a left Labor uh, premier in a jurisdiction that's generally seen as one of the most, uh, you know, Labor left um, sort of strongholds. And he was quite clearly the, the the sort of toughest of the premiers going into this COVID crisis. Victoria was known to embrace the restrictions more uh, more strongly than the other states. And Andrews himself. Uh, along with Gladys Berejiklian, his Liberal counterpart in New South Wales, was sort of instrumental in, I suppose, dragging the Commonwealth to a uh, to a stiffer position uh, in in uh, response to the COVID uh, threat. Um, and so, there's a, in the media we're seeing quite a you know in some sections of the media we're seeing quite a lot of um, a glee, I guess is the best way of putting it. That what's gone wrong has gone wrong there because they they felt like they were being lectured by Dan Andrews about how how uh, how bad this was and and now they're sort of happy that he's he's uh, taking a fall. Sure, it, it actually um, underscores the way in which history and politics turns on a sixpence in a yeah. way. I, I think in the first uh, 
two or three months. Um, I know a lot of people certainly in Canberra were talking about Prime Minister Dan Andrews in a sense in the way that he was leading that response. Um, And schadenfreude is, I think, a very good word in that um, of all the states that might have had the second wave, there's a sort of – I won't say happiness, but a sort of uh, smugness that yeah. it that it ha- happened in Victoria, um, and it it I guess it really surprises me uh, that the media have, um, in a sense, tried to um, tried to foster this, uh, uh, I guess, state interstate or uh, well uh, national attack on on uh, Andrews. Uh, because there, but for the grace of God, goes New South Wales or, mm. or Queensland. I mean, mm. um, and the word that's really not come up in this debate, and I think it's that Andrews and any other state premier could have been the victim of is privatisation. Yeah, the real breach in the sort of the in the uh, coherent and tough response was putting untrained private sector. Uh, guards on hotels. Yeah, so not not public sector employees not per so. se, but people who are contracted and people who weren't skilled for the job. That does appear to be one of the key breakdowns. The other one is in contact tracing. And people tell me that uh, the contact tracing in New South Wales has been superior and was for some you know, significant period of time leading up to this was superior to that which was happening in Victoria. So between those two things, a breach allowing the virus to escape into the community in this kind of post-lockdown period when it's very hard to get people to stay, you know, at, at sort of uh, at kind of high levels of alarm about uh, about the virus and then not particularly professional contact tracing, if that is the case, and, you know, the, some of these facts need to be established. I acknowledge that. But um, if that is the case, that is going to be very difficult, I think, for the Victorian government to defend. And so to, to, to that extent, you know, one can see a fair amount of justification in the criticism, particularly because this has such enormous implications. As I was saying, Josh Frydenberg is going to make this economic statement at the end of this week. We're going to hear about job seeker and job keeper and and uh, business loans. Apparently, um, how much of it is has had to be adjusted because this second wave emanating in Victoria has. You know, one reminded us that uh, how vulnerable we are. Two, absolutely smashed confidence, and three, put Victoria into a state of you know lockdown again. And it is twenty to twenty five percent of the economy. So it's a, it's you know, it has material implications. And probably four, you'd say, interestingly, is that Frydenberg is himself a Melbourneian. So you know, one wonders the extent to which that. Psychologically, also, you know, um, influences the, the the scale of the package that they eventually unveil. Yeah, the, I guess the question is how much will ideology creep back into these discussions? I think there was um, a broad acceptance in the initial response that Morrison was setting aside what were um, ingrained views about the role of government. Yeah, and I, I think that was welcomed, and. It'll depend, I guess, to be seen how much they try and wind that back and reintroduce ideology or how much a second wave forces them to stick to what they uh, initially did, which is um, 
interesting from a historical point of view because what it showed is that people expect the government to do stuff when there's a crisis. Mm. Um, and perhaps when there's no crisis, they'll let politicians get away with the idea that there's less role for the state or that state shouldn't be involved in uh, in these sorts of things. But when there is a crisis, people want the government to actually do something. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's sort of reinforced the, uh, the the fact that governments are important, governments do matter. And uh, as you say, when the crisis came around, it's, it's almost all that mattered, really. If yeah. it weren't for the public intervention, for pulling those levers, for borrowing more money than we actually have, at the moment, putting it into the economy, then there'd be a, a great deal more suffering, and uh, the whole system would 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 uh, would collapse. Interestingly, um, and perhaps not surprisingly, given what I've just said, uh, the government's riding high—that is, the federal government's riding high—but it's the it's the case really for all of the states as well. And and uh, you know, I'm told by people in Victoria that Andrews would win an election if he, you know, if they went to a poll right now, notwithstanding you know the difficulties there, because governments uh conscientious governments and i think that that could be said to be the case for all of australia's governments uh, state and federal through this crisis uh have have done quite well um the australians reporting again rather breathlessly today that morrison has these high approval ratings locked in which seems to me to be a pretty silly proposition given that uh, that's the whole point of opinion polling is to track <laughs> whether whether you're going up or down and uh, and and nothing's locked in and and we can think of historical uh, plenty of historical examples of people of uh, leaders who've won wars only to to lose elections or or, or battled through crises only to lose uh, elections uh, you know the, at the first opportunity that the voters have to toss them out I mean you you think obviously of of Winston Churchill but there's also uh, George Bush senior who was very popular after the Gulf War but uh, who then became a relatively rare thing in in American politics or the the less common thing a, a one term president there was Anna Bly in um, in Queensland uh, who I think in uh, what is it 2012. Uh, was tossed out after having been seen to have masterfully handled the, um, uh, you know, the, the public response during the Queensland floods of 2010-11. So, uh, you know, the, the idea that Morrison's position is absolutely locked in here when we could be talking about very serious economic dislocation going forward, uh, you know, long-term unemployment, uh, you know that that's not that doesn't make for a happy electorate saying you know gee thanks no not at all and I mean you mentioned Churchill the Churchill was uh, seen as and became the prime minister for the war but equally showed himself not to be the prime minister for the peace um, and so the the vision for post-war Britain that was articulated by the Attlee government was not undermined or uh, was not given sufficient churchill had no answer to the vision that um the atley government was proposing for a new britain so it the the fact that he was seen as having saved britain didn't actually carry forward into a a sense of what britain ought to look like um after the war yeah, and and this you might have said the same thing even about Chifley. I mean, uh, he uh, he loses the forty nine election. I mean, Labor's seen to have uh, handled the war very effectively. Um, you know, wins in what forty six, I suppose. But um, but yeah, in forty nine is not not regarded as the the party for the future um, because they're, in a sense they're they're sort of two 
quite different skill sets, aren't they? Uh, managing during a crisis and uh, and all of that, and then someone else steps forward and says, "Yeah, well, I've I've now got a plan for what we do now, and uh, if if it's a good plan, if it's one that animates the imagination of the electorate, then." You know, then that's that. It's so long and thanks for all the fish, uh, as Douglas Adams might say. <laughs> Even within Churchill's own party, among the Conservatives, there was a sense in which uh, a broad acceptance of the role of government in the post-war reconstruction, um, uh, what was called butskillism, was uh, a combination of Butler and Gateskill, uh, Butler being a Conservative uh, Chancellor, um, a consensus that the government had a role to fund the national health system and uh, public housing and, in a sense, to respond to the crisis in making Britain a modern uh, society, a better place than just one that had survived the war. That raises an interesting question um, and I guess it puts us into the prediction business, but what you you sort of just talked about there was – and it perhaps flowed from the other point you made a minute ago about the role of government, the centrality of government, the, the, the need for government and, the, and the, the valuable work that it does in those moments of crisis. Is it uh, the case that you can draw a lesson from that changing mood after the Second World War where there's, um, there's a hunger for reconstruction, there's an impatience for things to be uh, not just up and running again but done better and done differently. Is that possibly going to be the case here as well? I mean, the, the government that we have in power at the moment is, um, you know, avowedly sort of, uh, you know, small government, low taxes, uh, let the market do, do the work. You know, that's essentially the ethos. But they've been the ones at the tiller at the moment when the COVID crisis has hit. They've been the ones that have had to go to the market and borrow billions upon billions to spend, uh, to, you know, to have the state step in where the market would not survive. Um, and we, we hear a lot about the way in which uh, work is being done differently and the way people are looking afresh at at the um, at the economy and what they want from it, what they want from governments. That'll be interesting to watch, won't it? Whether whether the, this government is configured for a change in mood, if that change in mood is there, if Australians want different things, more ambitious things from the government. In other words, the the sort of the the neoliberal period, this signals the end of it, and people want more again from their governments. Well, this is the first time that really since Whitlam, and I mean, in comparison to Whitlam spending. Um, this government spent a lot of money. Um, for the first time, we've had an acceptance of the fact that running a national economy is not the same as running a household economy. Yes. That the government can borrow money, that the government can do what's needed to be done um, in a way that uh, contradicts much of what's been uh, the political norm for for decades and that is that if you spend too much then you have to pay it back and and so forth and I think uh, I'm not an economist I'm a historian of course but the um, the sense in which the um, that it's like you know Mr Micawber penny in penny out and or however the Dickens thing went is that 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 the national economy is not like a household economy mm. And to the extent that that's become embedded in the popular uh, view of the role of government, I guess that's to be tested. And whether or not the Morrison government can just 
snap back, to use that term, to start talking about, well, we've got this debt, therefore we can't spend and so forth. It's going to um, go above a trillion dollars, it looks. Yeah. Um, or say, well, you know, we, we, we've spent this money, but we don't need to um, we don't need to to reimpose austerity, if you like, yeah. on a growing economy um, or a recovering economy in order to meet some ideological uh, notion of um, the sort of neoliberal uh, economics. Um, yeah, whether Morrison has the, I guess, not the political vision to so much as the political courage to. Uh, to stand against the, the, what has become an ingrained as a political methodology. Yeah, the orthodoxy uh, of the, the times. Yeah, the, the orthodoxy that's now become entrenched and really has um, deeply uh, permeated popular thinking about, well, you know, we don't, we don't need high taxation, we don't want high taxation, um, that we can reduce taxes and spend more in some ways. Um, whether or not he's got the, I guess he's got the political capital at the moment to transcend that and to say, no, no, this recovery in terms of the national budget is going to take a long time, but that doesn't matter if people are living better, if prosperity is returning. We can deal with that over time. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating to watch. My sense is that Morrison is much more of a pragmatist than um, than some of his critics uh, think and perhaps that even some of his colleagues might have hoped uh, and that uh, he probably, you know, they've certainly made, the government's made some pretty good uh, signals in that regard. Uh, they've talked about... Um, paying down debt and getting the, the the budget back in shape by economic growth. Now, that's, you know, an ambitious idea. It's obviously a lovely idea in many ways if you can get the economy growing in, in, a, in a robust way. They're talking about 1% above trend for the next five years. Mm -hmm. Well, they'll be lucky to get it anywhere near trend growth, let alone be growing 1% above trend. And, you know, that's been the problem. Even while we have been growing, we've been growing relatively weakly and had, had you know, very poor wages growth. So it's ambitious, but at least it signals that, you know, the ideologues aren't uh, kind of talking about some, as you know, you used the term a second ago, austerity. They're not talking about some severe kind of cuts to, you know, drive the budget back into into the black in an aggressive way because that would be uh, an economy killer. It would be a job killer and um, and one imagines it would be a vote killer as well. So, you know, perhaps uh, there's some reason to think this government has and that goes i suppose to the to the you know to this point we started at which is that they they may find themselves playing a bigger role in the economy for much longer than they had ever intended to and that voters actually are quite comfortable with that yeah and of course it it, it then becomes a very difficult campaign for the opposition to run well it, yes it would it would potentially but i think the opposition's going to be uh, in a situation where, you know, they're fighting a government that's dealing with a very problematic economy. And, you know, whilst they might not, you know, be delighted in that, that's, um, uh, that's just going to be the reality that we're dealing with. Look, uh, sitting idly by, or hopefully in a very fascinated way, uh, is Kim Cuneo, who I mentioned before. Kim, you're a, a, um, a composer, uh, you're a musical professional, an academic, a scholar. Um, can you tell us a bit about how 
how musicians have coped with this sort of um, the advent of the COVID crisis? You know, what how, how sort of shattering has it been to normal practices? Oh, look, I'd love to, Mark. Can I just also just say what a great thing it was to listen on to this conversation because what I was thinking about when you were both speaking is that no matter what our ideology, we, we have to plan when we're making policy for things we can't foresee. Yes. And hopefully this is something that can come into the eyes of leaders because both of you have touched on this thing that we have this potential to move beyond ideology, but yet we need a new methodology to do this. And that's going, I think that's, you know, we're both, we're all situated in a university right now. And I think that there's a role for universities to play to encourage leaders to think beyond ideology. So I wanted to say that in response to that fantastic conversation. So now answering that question, well, I could just say anecdotally, people are shattered. You know, certainly most of my friends are, you know, professional arts workers, the majority in music, but also in, in theatre in aspects of drama, in aspects of visual art. And essentially, it's never been seen before where everything ground to a halt within a week. If we think about what's happened to the arts compared to other major events like wars or flood or famine, in those times, the arts workers are crucial. And just think back to the bushfires. Let's just remember that it was only in January that every musician worth their salt was putting together a bushfire benefit. And there was that sense that, you know, things there was a real role for music and all the arts to play in in our national debates and our national sense of going forward. And what COVID has done is it's basically said to, especially professional musicians, that your practice as it is historically known, which is a practice of sharing in a one-to-one setting that, you know, I meet you in person, not virtually, cannot work. So we've actually, I would say, fundamentally disrupted the profession in a way that no one could have foreseen I mean, some arts workers are doing okay because they've got onto, you know, essentially job seeker. But, you know, that's for a professional arts worker, that's not pretty good. The majority aren't on job keeper. And the ones who are in places like the academy have, I think, you know, guilt syndrome because they've survived. So it's pretty bad. But yet at the same time, despite that, what I love about artists is they still feel that they have a role to play in the society, that they're, they're still out there making things to make people feel better. So in the midst of such absolute carnage, I'm always a bit of an optimist for the arts because we start to to see it as crucial as ever and somehow we're adapting. It's like the the dinosaurs have gone and now we're looking at what the new version of what the arts can be, you know, with technology. And so there's a, a very weird small green shoot appearing. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting point you make about uh, the the bushfires, how quickly uh, things turned around. As you say, artists, uh, particularly musicians, were were doing all kinds of things for uh, people who'd been affected by that horrendous uh, bushfire season, and uh, and playing such a crucial role, and then suddenly found themselves the most immediate economic victims of the of the COVID crisis, uh, right on the front line, really, um, you know, as, as soon as venues uh, were, were to be closed, um, it, it, you know, it just collapsed. And of course, many of these people are affected badly in an economic sense, because it's an industry that works on so many short term employment contacts, and so precarious, uh, you know, people are in a state of kind of permanent temporariness. Well, the gig economy really comes from music, doesn't it? If we think about it, yeah, so we've taken yeah. this whole of, of Uber and all of that sort of disruption. And it's basically saying that everyone can be treated like artists. You know, I was looking this morning just at some data just to, to prepare myself and some things that I didn't realise that are quite quite amazing is that 
Uh, what's happened in the last 10 to 20 years is that, you know, the arts sector has aged just like Australia has, has aged. In, in the last check that the Australia Council did in 2015-16, uh, 41% of professional arts workers were over 55. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, and, and so in 2016, only 21% were under 35. So I think we've got this other thing that's happening. We've had these structural problems in the arts sector that have been around for a long time. Because Paul mentioned Whitlam, and of course, you know, for any any artist, Whitlam is it's a mythological past because it's a point where we had a sense of real vision for what arts could be, both for society but also for the funding of it. And we've seen, of course, you know, a steady whittling away of support and a feeling from government that it's the role of the private sector and philanthropy to step into a breach, but yet we haven't created a culture where that really happens yet. So we've got all these interesting things that happened before where really art, arts workers didn't do very well. Like, the you know, basically arts workers earn on average across the disciplines anywhere between eighteen dollars and $25,000 for their work. I mean, that's pretty sobering. We're not talking about the people who are hobbyists. We're talking about the people who do it at the elite level. Yeah, that, then, that, that's that's an utterly uh, chilling figure, isn't it? Really, for for people who are you know creative and it provides so much enjoyment to us. Let's take a quick break here because I want to come back and talk to you about um, the uh, more about this whole subject, but particularly that idea of the role that artists have played during the crisis in terms of uh, helping us all get through it. So, back in just a moment. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, Kim, you were talking before about the you know the, the parsimonious wages that or, or earnings that people in the um, in the art sector in many cases have, particularly musicians. And you you talked about the bushfires and the, the, the great work that they did, sort of community spirited work that they did um, in that crisis. As I was saying, they then became very much the sort of front line of the economic fallout from this COVID thing. But there's an irony in this. There's a sort of a tragic irony in this because with all of us banished to our homes, forced into a sort of atomizing rather than collecting together, we all fall back on on streaming services, on television, on on um, on uh, recordings of music, and listening to uh, artists doing their thing. Even even on social media, there's been a fantastic array of of musicians doing things, uh, you know, concerts from their lounge rooms, and the like. It, it's it's a terrible irony that that 
we simultaneously value the arts and rely as a society on the arts to uh, to entertain us, to to take us into different mind spaces, particularly at a time like this. And yet we are so so unconscious in a you know of 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 the um of those realities for artists faced with this crisis mark you've made a really important point and it's it's not to say that we shouldn't be able to just enjoy the arts because you know we do need to i mean i think lots of people have said to me where would we be in lockdown without well of course first of all the internet hmm. but second of all without something to distract us and maybe that's the big difference from now to a century ago or five centuries ago. We've got that sense that really we we invented the model of how to cope with lockdown in long haul flights, if we think about it. So <laughs> that's we, a very good point. <laughs> so we've invented something that keeps people still and dulls them and they get lots of food and drink and they get good quality audio or reasonable considering you're on a plane, but really good quality video. And And from that, I think everyone's become quite conscious that there's a way to survive. I mean, I was thinking also about, you know, we talked about how little money artists make, but can I give you the even worse news? And because I was talking about sort of total income, but artists like to say that there's a, it's like a bullseye. There's sort of the golden part, which is the stuff you really think you should be doing in your life. And then there's all the other stuff you do to survive. And, you know, basically the, the median income for purely creative work is anything between six and about $10,500 across the different art forms. You know, and so we get to a point where we, we realise that, well, artists have probably always known at some point that the, the day-to-day part of being a professional artist doesn't really work, but yet they make a trade-off. Now, some seem to get around it by, by training in another discipline, and this is something that, you know, we found in the ANU has really changed in the last 10 years. 40% of our students do double degrees now, so they might want to be a lawyer or a mathematician because they've actually they've learned that sort of structural lesson from their parents or their uncles or the people they've met that you probably need something else to do unless you're really really lucky. So that's one thing that artists have adapted to. But the ones who keep going and say I'm going to be really really good, I think they come to terms with the fact that in a sense they're almost pariahs. They have a double life. They meet people and people are sort of so in love with the glamour of what they do. You know, you meet a musician on stage and it's like they're superhuman. Hmm. But into their lounge room and you just sort of see someone who's often got secondhand everything. So the, the, the fall down when we see beyond the veneer can often be very distressing for people. But yet artists, I think, I think they're very left of centre, not in a political sense, but in a, a structural sociological sense. I think in many ways they really like that role. And certainly it seems to be two main points for artists' lives that, that really take a major examination. One is when you have a family and you suddenly want to get a mortgage. And the other one is economic downturn. And I think what's really interesting is we're seeing an economic downturn like we haven't seen. Even the GFC, of course, pales into insignificance for the arts, you know, into what's happening now. And so I think that we'll see two concurrent things. Some people are going to be like in wartime, they're going to say, I've always wanted to be an artist. Stuff it, I'm going to be an artist because life is so precious. And then others are going to say, this is the point I've been hanging on by the skin of my teeth. I'm getting a real job. Oh, hold on. There's no real job yet. I'd better keep practicing. Yeah. And my CV looks like I've been doing not much for the last five or eight or 10 or whatever it is many years because I've been trying to be an artist, uh, which might make it a bit harder also to get a job. But yeah, it, the point you make about uh, artists being sort of left of center in a kind of structural sense, in a way of thinking, 
Um, it did, of course, uh, you know, being an old political journal, um, uh, trig me to the, the, the obvious, which is that the government seems to have made an assumption that they're also you know, largely left of centre as a, as a political cohort uh, and that, that may that's the suspicion anyway that it goes a long way to explaining why uh, there was you know it took a long time for there to be any special assistance for the arts and entertainment sector uh, and um, uh, and when it came it was mostly in the form of of, of loans and this, this more recent that was 250 million dollars that package which came out a couple of weeks ago and since then we've also seen a 400 million dollar um, uh, package extension of package to entice um, Hollywood and other international film productions to Australian shores. And that's even occasioned some, you know, rather wry observations from people that we're actually spending more on subsidising the cultural product of other countries than we are necessarily of subsidising Australian stories. I guess that's a debate that uh, that can be had. But artists will welcome the jobs and any investment in the sector. But it is a uh, a reflection, I guess, on the way we all see it that we re- we allow the art sector to kind of wither at this at this moment, even though we rely so heavily on it. Paul, did you want to uh, make an observation about that? Uh, just again, a historical observation about the recognition of the role for government. I mean, if you look back at the New Deal, for example, there was a recognition that the arts should survive, and uh, basically, uh, under the New Deal. Painters, musicians, and so forth received a government salary um, to be to create jobs for uh, to see artists and musicians through the depression. <laughs> I find that I just I mean I'm cartoonists I'm, I'm, as well. Mark. I'm struggling to cartoons. imagine that this government doing that. Uh, even when they announced the two hundred and fifty million dollar package for the arts and entertainment sector, there was. It was noted by a number of people that there was a fairly strong emphasis on how this was going to help out. You know the tradies involved in set design and uh, lighting and so forth. Um, you know it was almost like the government had to find a way to talk about it in terms of real jobs that weren't actually necessarily in and of themselves artists. You sure. know, and people in those ancillary in- industries to film production, for for example, work from gig to gig, and they therefore don't qualify for job keeper, mm, and they're right. back on job seeker. Yeah. And of course, that's a, that's that's both. Uh, I mean, it's been doubled from where it was, which is terrific. But we're going to find out what what the government intends for that as well later this week. And it's uh, all the all the talk seems to be that it's in for a fairly serious haircut, uh, as, as indeed will JobKeeper be, as the government looks to a much longer term uh, rollout of these programs. I guess they they're pretty lucky in a way that they had budgeted 130 billion dollars for JobKeeper and it ended up being more like 70 billion dollars. So, you know, at least I mean it's all borrowed. Let's be honest about it. It's all borrowed, so it's not a saving in that sense. But um, you know, it's not 60 billion dollars they've now got in their pocket that they didn't have. But uh, but nonetheless, if they had the capacity to extend out that far in the past, then. Perhaps they're going to uh, use some of that, um, you know, that elbow space, as it were, to um, you know extend these programs longer. But if you're on Job Seeker, as as uh, as you've been pointing out, Kim, not you, but uh, people in the in the um, in the arts and entertainment sector, they're on Job Seeker because uh, you know their their work has simply dried up. That's no guarantee, of course, of of. Um, of anything really, because it's going to uh, it's going to be reduced, and uh, it's a it's a temporary payment while you're seeking work. 
if there's work there to be had. Yes, there's a certain irony, Mark, and, and, and Paul, that I find quite funny because, you know, art, artists, I think, always do like to see the irony and the humour in things. But for some artists, this was the one time they've got to pay out, pay down their debts. <laughs> they, were not, they were not working, but they're actually able to pay off their credit card. And I've heard this from six or seven personal friends that getting, you know, if you can get onto the full job seeker, suddenly you can get ahead for a little while. <laughs> and, um, so th- there's real trepidation, I think, in the sector at what's going to happen. But yet there's also a sense that there's been the opportunity for artists to, while they're bunkered down, to, to write things on a larger scale than they'd ordinarily do. And so that's something that I think is, is quite interesting. That, and it comes down to what we were talking about before, maybe this fear that the federal government has that, that you know, it's not just a structural leftism, but it's a political leftism in artists. Uh, we can say that on some level that might be true, but in the in the so-called elite art forms, it's it's very much more nuanced because the people who work in opera and often in in symphony orchestras, they're very aware that that the elite arts only really survive because of the the artistic taste of of the so-called elite, which are by and large people who vote for the coalition, and people sometimes in the coalition who actually have a, a greater love for those sorts of arts, and and funnily enough. You know, a lot of Labor people will actually say quite openly, well, you know, I'm not really into that elitist arts. And Mm. yet that's the sort of thing that almost fires the whole industry because we can see so many pop stars in music. Actually, they're pretty good because they spent their childhood learning an instrument that has nothing to do with the electric guitar. But that's how they got their musical chops. But the thought of, you know, seeing someone like, you know, Angus Young in, you know, not in his... uh, you know, in his adult version of being a school kid, but as a school kid playing, it just doesn't quite work, does it? <laughs> well, I'm going to reveal something, uh, you know, that uh, uh, listeners will be very interested in here, and that is that uh, Paul Pickering may be a professor now, but he used to uh, he used to be oh, in a band and, uh, and 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 uh, jump around off stage and so forth, playing a guitar, and has a few guitars still. That's right, Paul, isn't it? Yes, that is. But this is not fair. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to play. We might get Kim to play. Uh, we're not going to ask you to play. Uh, much better. Kim, what, Kim, what's it been like uh, for you personally as a, as a composer? I mean, what, what's COVID done that's sort of fundamentally changed the process for you? Well, the funny thing is I, I had a little bit more time because, you know, trying to run a music school, I mean, you know, a bunch of amazing artists all together and then, you know, sort of 300 people learning it. We're pretty busy in our day-to-day sense, but the lockdown gave me some time to think, maybe to zoom out, I guess you could say. <laughs> That's a good concept. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I'm not sure if you remember, there was a quite quite a well-known song to the tune of I Will Survive about going on Zoom, you know, mid-March, it sounds like a, an age ago. And that was sort of how I started. But I was thinking of about two or three things. One is, what are the methodologies that artists can do and can I try them out in, in the time I've got at home? So I started by doing this thing, well, I'm lucky I've got a reasonable home studio, but I got work to send me in just the standard USB microphone that a lot of people have taken home to do using their Zoom meetings. And my wife and myself, we wanted to see how good we could get the sort of home recording thing on the cheap equipment that people are normally using. And is this good enough? And that was a really interesting experience. And we we sent it off to to the school in our community and also to the Canberra Symphony. And as a result of that, we have a a whole project now, the ANU School of Music and the Canberra Symphony Orchestra, where we're getting people, I think you've seen pictures of all the squares where people play, but we're actually getting the professional 
orchestral members, our student orchestral members, and also in some of the pieces, amateurs from the public to all play together. And our amazing tech guys are actually putting it together and making something that's quite remarkable. So, so one thing was like a proof of concept. And the other thing I've been doing, Mark, which I've loved is sort of turning my workflow on its head. Now, a composer normally, well, you know, it doesn't happen for all composers, but normally you do some of your work on pen and paper because that's how we learn. It's like, it's a bit like the myth of the poet, the poet actually, you know, writing their stuff on, on a notebook, but because we can do all these other ways of making music, but for some reason, the pen and paper does work really well with a piano. And for example, I'm, I'm doing this podcast on top of my piano. So I just work on my piano and that's what many musicians do. Right. But what, but what can happen is that we can use technology much more overtly. So I started with the pen and paper on, on a piece I did as a proof of concept. And then I took it to the computer very early on and I micromanaged every single note on the computer to try and make it sound as human as possible to do the sort of stuff that really there'd not ordinarily be no expression of time. And what we've done at the School of Music is that over the, the COVID period, we've also brought in what's called a disclavia piano. That's a piano that can play that data. So we're partway through a process where I've done all this stuff. I've turned the piece into something that is, you know, very, very expressive in a virtual sense. But now we can actually make it real and be very COVID because we're going to record the piece next week, literally with no pianist, because the piano will play itself. And that's the sort of stuff that really would have been a gimmick a year ago. But we're realising that we're looking at, at, you know, functional workflows for artists to work with over the next two to three years now. So I feel that I've got this role to play in, in us doing that. But yet there's also this sense of just being a child again, like finding ways to, to make art fresh in this very, very isolated time. It's really fascinating actually to think about the, the sort of technological um, opportunities that exist, and some of which have existed for a while, but which we haven't been forced into into sort of taking the leap towards. Uh, we've seen this with, you know, the obvious one is Zoom, and we've seen so many people using that or, or similar platforms for virtual meetings in this COVID period. Uh, and even though even though the technology might have existed for a while, suddenly uh, companies, uh, organisations are, are doing it very routinely, and it will be fascinating to see the extent to which that becomes much more normal afterwards rather than people flying all over the country. I, I think the airlines are, are um, if, if they're not fretting about where they are at the moment, they're certainly worrying about when demand comes back, whether it will ever come back to the to the levels that they um, that they used to have. The other thing that's interesting from what you said, I thought about the the recording using more more sort of basic equipment is there's sort of a parallel that we've seen with the advent of you know the iPhone or the smartphone with a camera, and those cameras have become very sophisticated. And we we've seen movies shot with them, and we've certainly seen you can you can see some really quite brilliant photography, including your own if you if you're any good uh, on your own phone now. Things that were things that are in everyone's hands and which were considered uh, you know um, very second best by professional photographers a long time ago, but the the optical quality and the ability to see it and edit it and uh, and um, um, you know change that image if if that's your uh, you want uh, is is so much more available there now so yeah fascinating um fascinating process it is actually from the point of view of teaching a lot of the teaching that's been in a sense forced upon us by lockdown has been done asynchronously so lectures have been recorded and i know a lot of my colleagues have actually recorded those on their iPhones 
and they're really good quality. Mm. Um, precisely as you say, Mark, that they can be edited, they can be um, polished, re retaken, and so forth. And that what's then happened is that tutorials have been done um, in real time, but the lectures are done asynchronously. The problem is Zoom fatigue. Yeah. One of the one of the one of the most effective forms of teaching that's been developed is the intensive that's done over a very short period of time. But running an intensive, I think people have found is almost impossible with Zoom because it's just too hard to do it for too long. Well, just explain to listeners what you mean by an intensive and how that differs from the normal, you know, from a normal lecture that might be given over a, over the over the internet. Well, a, no, a normal course would run weekly over a, a semester of 12 or 13 weeks depending mm -hmm. on uh, which university you, you you're working at and the um, information is therefore rolled out in a in a um, a, a a staged way. A, a staged way and an incremental way. And, uh, an intensive um, compresses uh, contact uh, to 10 days yeah. um, in, in some instances. Now, the students do pre-reading and they do post-face-to-face post um, assessments, but the bulk of the teaching is done in a very compressed block. And this has proved really effective. But, you know, if... All day on Zoom is just very, very tiring. It's very, it's a, it's zombifying or whatever. <laughs> yes, I think we get zoomed. I think Zoom is not a noun; it's also a verb. <laughs> well, you know, I've got a sign on my door that says "On Bloody Zoom." <laughs> yes, I've seen. Do it. not deserve. <laughs> <laughs> and and they say sitting is the new smoking. I mean, if you if you know, it might be an exaggeration, but spending a whole day trapped in front of your computer, where you know, where you effectively are just kind of required to be there, you know, your face there and, and, and it's, it's quite passive and yet quite intense as well. And for a whole day, that is just, yeah, a very unpleasant. It's quite different, as you say, Paul, from, from being in a, um, uh, an intensive where, where, you know, where you will physically move around as well and, uh, uh, you know, coming and going and so forth, getting a cup of tea and all of those things. Hey, Mark, can I just jump in on this yeah. intensive? Because we just finished one and it was, you know, certain things give you just joy. And I do have to thank Paul for this because he signed off on it. We were just able to have special dispensation at the School of Music and bring in our our, our performance majors to actually play for two weeks. So we realised that with the lockdown that, you know, we put all these things that you could work on Zoom, you could have your lessons, but really there's no substitute for actually being with a master musician so we just we took a real gamble at the School of Music and we said we're going to hope that there's a time that we can just do this later and it looks like we've just got it in. But the joy for me was suddenly hearing music that didn't come out of this tiny computer speaker. I'd become used to the idea that it comes out of the little Mac laptop mm, mm. and suddenly it was like three-dimensional. It was all around me and behind me and it was bouncing off the walls and it was accompanied by a person's face. It was just honestly I felt like <laughs> I was a new person so this is what we can look forward to. And, you know, it's one of the real tragedies of Melbourne to come back to how we started today is that the gigs had just started up again. So gigs had been going for about 10 days in Melbourne and people were just getting used to. And, of course, Melbourne's sort of factory of live music of Australia in some ways. And to see it shut down now, there's, there's a lot of musicians who are in a, you know, a bit of a health and a mental health crisis because of it. Now, 
you have a piece of music that you can play for us. This will be a first for Democracy Sausage. I don't think we've uh, played any music before, but uh, introduce this piece. Well, Mark, I, I was thinking about all of you know what to do, and so I did this test, and I wrote a little piece called Riches to Rags in COVID Time, which is self-explanatory because, you know, people have sort of lost everything or in the process of losing everything. And I thought, what's the what's the thing that we should get to that really sums up that feeling? And I thought it was partly the blues, but it was also like the rag music of someone like Scott Joplin. So I'm not sure how much we'll listen to, but the middle of it, it goes into this really weird discordant rag time thing. So it's sort of like taking us back to 1918. <laughs>
Well, that was really quite amazing. In fact, uh, you know, you, you, you said uh, some influences of Scott Scott Joplin and that sort of ragtime feel. I, I could also feel a bit of Lalo Schifrin in there. It had that kind of, you know, dramatic, discordant uh, uh, tendencies in it as well. Am I on the right track there? You certainly are. I mean, that, that's what I do love about music. We've talked about, you know, how bad it is for music but it's also in a sense a boom time for music especially in a place like Australia because if we zoom out from this particular crisis where we're at a point where any musician has access to really the sum total of human history history making music and so if you if you're able to you can actually sort of become a, a germination factory for all the music you listen to and put it out and that's what I love about it, being a musician now. Like the skills of being a functional musician are just so huge compared to what they were, but yet so are the rewards because we can, like, the, you know, it's amazing to think that that piece isn't on a real piano. Yeah. Like it, yeah. It's made on what's called a virtual piano, and so it all happens within the confines of the computer. And unless you really know, you can't tell the difference these days. So music is it's an exciting medium for us all, but yet if I can give one thought to everyone who's listening – if you know a musician, just check up on them. Check up on their mental health and check how they're going because, you know, musicians always, and, and all artists, of course, they're always a little bit on the edge because that's the nature of the economic life but also the ability to be a sense of the canary in the coal mine, which is, I think, something all artists take on, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, the nature and, of the creative life as well to some extent, isn't it? Yeah. So so, so look out for them and... Um, and also remembering that most musicians have political opinions. They, they're not just the people who do the entertaining. And that's just one other thought, that musicians, they often get to observe things. And certainly in my life, I've done the music for so many events and I get to meet, you know, people of all works of life. It's really fun yeah. for musicians yeah. to come into the, the conversation because they're, they're often able to think in a fuzzy logic sort of way and to come up with ideas that might be crazy but might not be crazy as well. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Kim. That was really terrific and beautiful uh, beautiful notes there to uh, inject into a podcast that's normally just voices, so I really enjoyed that. Paul, I can't leave this podcast this week without plumbing your thoughts on the Palace Letters. Um, we discussed this with uh, uh, Chris Wallace and Frank Bongiorno as a special Democracy Sausage Extra last week, and it was a really, really excellent discussion. Really enjoyed it. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts about the, the Palace Letters? Uh, I noticed The Economist uh, magazine ran a story just yesterday saying that 62% of Australians want an Australian head of state. And I immediately, being a, being a sort of a contrary journo type, flicked that around and thought, what, so 38% of Australians want a foreign head of state? I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a quite a disturbing figure. How can they justify this? Well, that's, uh, yeah, it's a, an interesting moment because those letters actually underscore one of the dilemmas of, uh, of historians, and that's the difference between incident, the incident and the context for it, so everyone can find what they want in those letters. The, yeah. the, the, all right, Kerr didn't notify the Queen. That's the incident, um, but the context is quite clearly that there was a discussion about the uh, about the reserve powers of of the um, of the monarch in relation to the sixty two percent. I mean, I think we've been there before. Uh, before the yes. before the tragic last uh, referendum, nineteen ninety nine, yeah, the nineteen ninety nine tragedy. Um, but what this has done, I think, usefully, has allowed us to revisit the idea that we can't go to a vote unless we've got a model to put up 
It's so a really good point because I tweeted the uh, the Economist thing making that point about the thirty eight percent, and you know a lot of people have you know similarly supported the idea because it, it is quite a startling figure. Thirty eight percent of people are happy with a foreign monarch, but or a foreign head of state. But um, you know others quite rightly point out that. The, the, you know, people aren't necessarily prepared to go to an Australian head of state if they're not prepared to, you know, see if they haven't seen the model and they're not happy that the way it, it would be configured is an improvement on the current situation. And it's not just for those people, the question of whether the head of state is an Australian or the Queen's man, it, uh, or Queen's woman, as it was in the case of uh, Quentin Price. Um, it's, it's uh, it's a question of uh, you know what would the system of government be? What would it change in our system of government? Yeah, I mean, um, the analysis of the outcome in nineteen ninety nine was that what defeated the Republican cause was that fundamental division with among Republicans. Mm. Between the, um, minimalist, the middleist model, minimalist model and the uh, yeah, direct electionists, yeah, and so um, and the thirty eight percent may include those people who are quite happy with uh, Queen Elizabeth. It might also be uh, those people who think if you know if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, they're not that, that worried about uh, you know someone. I mean, the Governor General opening bridges and all the rest of it, and not actually having day to day impact on our political life. Um, but what is beholden, I think, on Republicans now is before we go near a vote, is that there's some sort of consensus about how to how to create a hybrid model that that neither uh, creates rival mandate of a president or elected governor or whatever you'd want to call it, and the sovereignty of the parliament, which of course is also elected by the people. Mm. And until we can until we can harmonise those. Then I don't. I think we risk having the same problem again, and that is a a debate within Republican uh, supporters that's reflected in the outcome of a. It's a always the problem for reformers for the left more broadly, because as as my dad used to say to me, there's an infinite number of ways you can change something, whereas there's only one way of keeping it the same, and so it's it's much easier for those resisting change to coalesce around the idea of simply holding the line. Uh, when you get multiple pushes for change, you get divisions between those groups and that makes them weak as a, as a political force. Yeah, what's the old saying? The left divides the right rules? <laughs> I mean, I think, it, uh, the, you know, the inertia of conservatism is something we shouldn't ever forget. Yeah. Um, and the Except that it's being trashed by so-called conservatives at the moment. And and it was so-called conservatives that trashed it in 1975. I mean, Malcolm Fraser's behaviour was to absolutely trash the convention that the Senate passed appropriation bills, that the Senate uh, did not block supply. He used his numbers in the Senate to force a constitutional crisis and became its chief beneficiary. And he was aided in the end by a compliant Governor-General who had consulted quite extensively with the palace over a long period of time. As you say, that goes to the context. And yes, in the end, he didn't say, I'm about to do this, but there'd been a pretty uh, pretty uh, comprehensive discussion of options over a fairly long period of time, and he'd kept the palace well up to date with his assessment of the various players involved. Sure, and then was elected 
by a landslide. Yeah, then Malcolm. Fr- yeah, well, see, that's the, that's where they say the vindication comes in, of course. But of course, they? it doesn't. But it it uh, it, it again shows a, a democratic, um, I guess, a democratic veneer over the top of mm, a yeah. uh, over the top of a constitutional crisis. Yeah. All right, look, it's been absolutely uh, terrific discussing all of these things. We've had a, uh, a very varied discussion today and uh, I'm so so glad to have played some music in there. Uh, so thanks very much to Paul Pickering. Thank you, Paul. Uh, great pleasure, Mark. And thanks for being with us, Kim Cuneo. My pleasure. Thanks again, Mark. It's been really terrific talking to both of you. I'll be back later in the week with a Democracy Sausage Extra and, of course, next week uh, with this Monday podcast, which, of course, you can subscribe to as well as just uh, picking up as you as you see it. Uh, until then, it's a big thanks to Martin Pierce and his fantastic team at Policy Forum at the Crawford School of Public Policy for producing this podcast as they do so professionally each week. Uh, and until uh, next time, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.